Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Square Peg Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and I am pleased to have here in the studio my friend and uh, recently retired Las Cruces firefighter, Louis Burke. Louis, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate you inviting me. Hey, um, so what's it been, two, three weeks now since you retired? Over a month now. It's been over a month. Just barely. Are you getting any rest? No. <laughs> I haven't gotten any rest at all. I, you know, this is something that I ask people because I, um, I'm actually closer than ever. I've, you know, you, you were both uh, work for the, for uh, local government here and on the same retirement system, and I'm pretty sure I've been eligible for a little over three years, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to pull the trigger October one of next year. But um, I've ta- I've asked a lot of guys about this. What, a- any weird emotions or feelings about retiring? I, w- I was uh, a little anxious prior to retirement because I did it uh, for uh, 25 years, nine months, almost 26 years. And so it was such a routine of going to work, seeing the guys' faces that, you know, I really was concerned how, how I was going to adapt to to such a change. But uh, I, um, you know, not, I'm not saying I don't miss the guys because that was my biggest concern that I was going to miss the the brotherhood and the sisterhood that we have in the fire department. But uh, I, I think I've just been so busy. Uh, I jumped right out of the frying pan into the fire into just work and, and busyness that I haven't had a chance really to reflect on and, on seeing all the guys. I, of course, I miss them, you know, sitting around the, the table and drinking coffee or uh, you know, BSing in the offices or whatnot. But, but, uh, I just have I'm just too busy now so I, I, and I do miss them but not to the extent I thought I would. You know um you you're from Las Cruces, you've lived in Las Cruces your whole life. Um to my knowledge, right? Right. Um it, it's not like you're you're not going anywhere and they're not going anywhere. You're still heavily involved in the community, but I know that your last assignment were you weren't exactly in a fire station. So mm-hmm. but we'll get to that a little bit later. I think maybe that was in a good way, maybe kind of eased you out of things. But, you know, I, you and I just talked before we started recording. It looks like you got a big trip coming up here pretty soon. We're going to get to that, though. But, you know, I think the thing that uh, people who don't know you as a firefighter, um, and I guess I don't know why anybody wouldn't if they're from Las Cruces, but, you know, you carry a name that's well-known here in Las Cruces. And anybody who's driven down Solano Drive has seen the, the, the Sammy Burke Youth Boxing Club, the Police Athletic League Boxing Club. And uh, you and your brother, Rocky, uh, who's uh, – I was about to call him a colleague, but I guess, well, I guess he's still a colleague, even though I, 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 I'm air quoting his boss in some senses. Uh, you know, you guys are very well known, right? Your brother Rocky's in the New Mexico Boxing Hall of Fame. Yeah. Was inducted last year. He was inducted last year. Mm-hmm. Talk about your first introduction to boxing. Well, I grew up in it. My father was a coach, uh, and he's the one that uh, he started up a, a boxing program for the boys club before it was the boys and girls club. There's a little gym that has since uh, been uh, demolished. But there was a gym that was connected to the current Boys and Girls Club. And uh, that's where I first started was at the Boys, Boys Club. And then uh, once they demolished the gym because it was condemned, then uh, my dad helped uh, uh, get the, the PAL uh, gym started. And that used to be an old National Guard armory, which was given to the city as a boxing gym. And it was uh, the the city was it was given to them so they could facilitate, you know, the uh, uh, the funding and, and whatnot that came in to maintain the building, and, and it was given uh, 
as a national from the National Guard the state to the city as a boxing gym so I, I started there you know I started when I was I was actually raised in the gym I mean that was my babysitter you know just watching the kids spar and, and running around the gym punching the bags so I grew up in it yeah, you know that's something that um, I think uh, you know. I had well, I had one of your fighters on about a year ago, Jennifer Hahn. She talked about that growing up in her father's dojo, mm-hmm. and um, you know I remarked it uh, for a couple of years. I trained over at what's now Three Crosses Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and you know Jacob and Angela have six kids, and their kids have grown up in the gym. Right. You know now, what was your dad? Your dad was a boxer of sorts, I guess. Yeah, my dad fought. Uh, uh, he started here in Las Cruces uh, under uh, his coach was Frank Mirabal, and. Uh, from there, he went to the Marine Corps, and he was he fought in the Marine Corps until he got wounded in Korea, and then he came back uh, as a wounded uh, soldier, and he came back, and then he uh, started uh, boxing the boxing club here. Now, your your big brother, you're you're younger than Rocky, right? Yes. Okay, because Rocky's sixty sixty nine. Okay, I wasn't going to say it. I was just going to say sixty <laughs> something, but. He looks awfully good for sixty nine. He looks he's, better than I do. He still he still he still gets around the ring pretty good. He's one of our referees here in New Mexico. So how much? So he's got a few years on you. Did yes. he? Um, and so he was already boxing. Now, mm-hmm. when did your amateur career start? When did you have your first amateur fight? When I was seven years old. It was at the boys' club, and I remember it was against uh, another kid from Carlsbad, and they put us in. You know, and uh, it was a three round boxing match and I I won that fight I remember and then my next fight was actually held at the uh what uh, at the NMSU and it, it's the art um it's the art building now but it used to be um I forgot the name of the the name of the gym but that was their gym and that's where the Aggies actually played basketball before they they built the Pan Am Center and we fought I fought in there against a kid named Gene Fulmer or um, Bart Fulmer, whose father, Gene Fulmer, was a middleweight champion of the world. And uh, I fought uh, I fought him there, and we fought to a draw. And it was uh, that whole card was listed as the Battle of the Champions. Uh, they brought all these national champions in the fight in the Las Cruces at the Pan Am Center. Well, think, it wasn't the Pan Am, at the NMSU. I think that's Williams Hall, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I, yeah. Um, now, that's interesting you said at seven, because I know now the age is you can't fight until you're eight. Right. But that's a USA boxing thing. How many amateur fights did you have? To exactly, I don't know, but I'm going to guess about 60. Yeah, about 60. So you turned pro in 1981. Mm-hmm. How old were you? 18. You were 18. Okay. And I was just, you know, for those of you who don't know, if you ever want to know anything about any boxer, you look up, it's called BoxRec, B-O-X-R-E-C. And it's an amazing resource. It's something that I use as a commissioner. Um, when we're when we're trying to approve a card, we have to make sure fights are fair, and you can look at somebody's record and who they fought and who their records are. And um, I was actually found it very interesting. You fought five times in 1981. Yeah, and that's just not something you see a whole lot of nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and you made your debut in San Antonio. Well, I actually made my debut, but it's not on Boxrec. There's two fights that are on Boxrec that that are, that are not on Boxrec that I fought. And then one was the first. When it was actually in El Paso, at the Coliseum, that's where I made my debut. But then my second fight, which on Boxrec is my debut, uh, I had my next two fights in San Antonio. Okay, yeah, and I, you know, it was interesting to see because you fought five times in 1981, seven times uh, in 1982, 
four times in 1983, three times in 84, and then twice in 1985. You were a busy fighter. Yeah. Were you doing anything else? Uh, I was going to school at NMSU. Okay, and I would imagine your dad was your coach. Um, well, my dad, uh, my dad was a, uh, you know, he started locally, but then he he became a coach for the U.S. boxing team, and he traveled all over the world, and um, as a coach. And af- after a while, he told me, you know what, I'm gonna let you go into these other trainers because I've trained, I've taught you everything that I know, and I need you to to expand a little bit. So I went from my dad. I went to. Uh, uh, Jim Montoya, who was uh, a, a big-name trainer at the time in Los Angeles. Uh, I trained with Jesse Reed, who's in the uh, Hall of Fame. I, I trained with Angelo Dundee, was my last trainer. Angelo, of course, probably one of the most famous trainers in the world, trained uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, George Foreman. So, you know, I was in... And you were a lightweight? Lightweight, yes. 135. Now, you did fight, it looks like, I think your last fight, you might have dropped down to junior lightweight slash super feather yeah which was a big mistake uh, i couldn't make that weight anymore and i tried and, and uh i dehydrated and almost died well that's not good now it's interesting you say um your dad taught you everything that he could and that you went up to train with other people that's something that you've experienced too uh with probably your most famous fighter austin trout we'll get to that a little bit later but um why do you think fighters nowadays are not as busy? I mean, you, like I said, you fought seven times in one year professionally. Um, looking back, do you think that was a good thing, or is there a good reason guys aren't fighting seven times in a year now? No, I, I think we should stay as uh, – fighters need to stay as busy as possible. Uh, and I'll take Austin as a perfect example. Uh, Austin was a finesse fighter, and he had to stay busy. And he, the, t- the times he was the busiest is when he had fights in front of him. You know, and and you have to uh, maintain that uh, continuity in order to maintain your skill level. You know, of, of fighting, and, and uh, I think the old-time fighters back from my era and earlier, they honed their skills. They were that's why they could go 15 rounds. You, you get guys now that, especially heavyweights, you see in the heavyweight division more than any other division. Uh, these guys have great supplements. They have great training. Uh, methods, you know, they have everything, you know, you can ask for, but yet they struggle to go 12 rounds. Could you imagine them going 15? And then you get Frazier Ali who went 15, and they felt like lightweights. They threw a million punches. The finesse was there. All that beca- is because they're able to, all the rounds and the fights they put in, you know, they're able to hone their skill and become more adaptable to that. Well, I think there are also some, as you know, some very tragic reasons why the WBC reduced their championship fights from 15 to 12 rounds. Uh, I believe it was in 1982 when Boom Boom Mancini fought Duke Koo Kim, yeah. uh, and Kim died a few days later. But, you know, um, kind of lost track of my thought. Oh, you were talking about guys, you but know, staying. Let, let me interject on that, though. That happened in the 12th round. And even if it went to, even now it could have happened because they go 12 rounds. Uh Ray's one of my best friends. I was groomsman in his wedding, and uh, me and him grew up together pretty much uh, from actually we, he came and spent his senior year um, Christmas with us, a senior in high school. And so I knew Ray personally, but, uh, yeah, they changed it, and then there was also a rumor going around that uh, they changed the format from 15 to 12 because TV could get more ads in. 
that I don't know how. I don't know how that works. It's fewer yeah. fewer in between rounds to work with. Yeah. In, in any case, I think you you talk one thing about people staying busy, but I think that um, and not to call anybody out, you know, not to put anybody on the hot seat, but you know, boxing is a sport that traditionally has attracted people from certain demographics that uh, a lot of kids who need to be off the street. And I think that the more time you spend fighting is less time on the street. Right. And that's a pretty good example. Now, some of your career highlights, uh, anybody who's ever seen, anybody who's watched boxing in the last really 20 years and seen any of these uh, major fights, you fought Freddie Roach twice. Mm-hmm. It, were they were they yeah. back-to-back fights? Uh, no, I had a fight in between. And you, you beat him by unanimous, unanimous decision twice. Yes. Was that weird for you fighting Fighting somebody twice? No, no, not at all. Uh, you know, uh, back then we just uh, we we fought whoever. You know, I mean, if you look at Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake Lamata, they fought each other 15 rounds within a couple, you know, two three weeks. I think three weeks apart. Now that's got to be awfully taxing. I think that you know before I got involved with professional boxing, uh, working for the for working for the athletic commission. The number of times I've seen pro boxing live was actually very few. And the funny thing is the only two times I saw David Rodriguez fight, he fought the same guy, John Turlington, two four-rounders. The, the, the second one was here at the uh, at the Pan Am Center. But, um, you know, you actually fought probably your most, most famous person you've ever fought is you know, uh, Hector Macho Camacho. Right. And um, don't want to bring up bad memories. You retired. You got retired in that fight. Um, no, actually, I had a fight after that. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. that fight, the, you oh, retired on that. I got stopped, yeah. You got stopped. Yeah. Now, it doesn't show. One, one thing Box Rec doesn't show is what round. What round was that? Uh, I believe the sixth round. And was it fatigue? Was he just... No, uh, my eyes shut, and they stopped it on a... Because my eye was shut, and they said I couldn't see out of my... I could still see out of it, but they... I'll be honest, you know, uh, Camacho was slowing down. I was slowing him down with some body shots. And I think they got a little bit worried and stopped it. Too, in my opinion, stopped it too early, because uh, uh, a closed eye. Even if I had, and I was able to see out of both of them. I was having a little trouble, maybe seeing out of one of them, but I, at that time, because it was shutting on me. But in all honesty, I would have fought with one eye if I if I could have. And and I think he, he was slowing down a lot. He had his last round. He had a real uh, flashy combination that he caught me with right at the end there, but. And that might have had some influence, but as far as fatigue, uh, the the game plan was to to stay on him and just break him down, and just because my um, I, I just never got tired. I didn't get tired. You know, I could go on and on in the later rounds. That's those are rounds I beat Freddie Roach in. You know, I just usually got stronger. And so. And, and Camacho usually declined in the later rounds, and so I was hoping to take him in, in the deep water. Didn't get that far. Well, so. and of course you didn't. You didn't get a rematch, but uh, you know you ended up with a, a 19 and three pro record. You had, you scored 12 knockouts. 12 of your 19 wins were by knockout. I think that's pretty impressive. It was a pretty short career, though. Why'd you retire? Yeah. 22, 23 years old. Two two eye surgeries. Okay. Two eye injuries. I, I said after the second one. Uh, Detached retinas. No, I had uh, orbital fractures. Two orbital, orbital fractures. Last one, I dehydrated, almost died on top of having uh, eye surgery. So I, at that time, it was like, well, I think that's enough for now. I did have a fight after that in uh, in the Mountain Gods, professional fight after that. Now, according is, to BoxRec, your last fight was actually here at the at the Pan Am. Yeah, I know that that one's not uh, recorded. Is, yeah. is that because why is that? Because I don't know. You know, BoxRec wasn't as um, prominent and. The older, you know, pre, pre in 1990, uh, 
wasn't as accurate as it is now where the commission got involved back then the commission didn't submit uh fights into box rec and so uh, i'm assuming you know like i said there's two of them on box rec that i had that that aren't included i have actually two wins well in any case you had uh little bit more than a dozen years between your last fight and the time you got into firefighting what did you do for a living during that time um i trained fighters during that time i uh went and i was hired by uh, a man named ron weathers who was george foreman's promoter uh co-promoter later on with uh, bob arum and uh he had a stable of fighters uh a good stable they he had blue chip fighters uh, a lot of them were olympic alternates and rated in the world and most of them were heavyweights and he hired me to work with him during that time. I also had, uh, prior to that, I had a bar in Las Cruces, uh, the chicken coop, and, sen- and later on it was known as Senor Chili's, and I ran that for seven years while I was going to college. And um, after I sold that, then uh, I was hired on as uh, the chief um, trainer for uh, Ron Weathers' camp. And did you, did you have to leave Las Cruces to do that? Yes, I, I went to Houston. We trained uh, there in uh, Humboldt, Texas, where, where George Foreman's from. Uh, you know, just uh, a lot, like I said, a lot of more world-class uh, heavyweights. How did you get interested in firefighting? How did that whole thing get started? I needed a job. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was going to, I had my daughter. Uh, and uh, during the time I was training fighters, uh, I came to Las Cruces, met my daughter's mother. Um, and... Uh, end up having a, my daughter Samantha and uh, I needed to come back uh, and uh, take care of her and be part of her life and so uh, I came back I needed a job I quit my uh, training job in Houston and uh, I came back here and uh, my brother called me up one day and said hey they're hiring at the fire department so I, th- I figured that I would go ahead and um, apply and uh, you know the rest is history. I was there for 26 years. Well, I mean, if there's, if nothing else, I mean, traditionally, first responder jobs, police and fire don't get paid. Again, traditionally, they're not considered uh, the best paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what things were like when you started 25 years ago, but I've told people, you know, numerous times in Las Cruces, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer or one of those fancy engineers who we don't really know what they do, works over at NASA or White Sands, one of the best jobs you can have around here long term over the course mm-hmm. of a career is as a copper firefighter they're union shops um good retirement good benefits and with uh you know with firefighting and we'll get i want to get to this in a little bit your schedule um actually gives you lots of time off yeah uh, to do to do other things now like everybody else i know that when you let's kind of go in reverse order you were working in logistics right before you retired right right correct how long did you do that just kind of tell me what that what that job was like my last three years in, with the fire department was with logistics. And so you were based out of, where was your office? Uh, we had an office there on Valley. Uh, it was um, uh, South Valley Drive, by, right by the Walmart. And, uh, you know, that's where we received all the uniforms, all the bunker gear, all the equipment, and we had to disperse it and send and get it to the guys so they could fight the fires. Okay. I told the guys, I said, hey, we make the capes, you wear them, you know. You make the capes. You were, you know, I was just thinking of, um, we may have talked about this. You may have seen this on my Facebook, but I discovered about three and a half years ago, um, you know, I'll be 50 here pretty soon. And I've been, you know, I was an athlete growing up and I've discovered weightlifting as a teenager and I've always been in the fitness. 
But I discovered right right at the beginning of the pandemic, I discovered um, functional functional strength training, mm-hmm. um, which you know I don't do nowadays. Looking back, I can't believe I wasted my time all those years with bench presses and squat, you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And now everything I do is very functional. And um, I was just watching somebody do, and you'll tell me what the real name of it is. The the competition that the firefighters do, where they you know you're in bunker gear, you run, you you go up five flights of stairs, you do hand over hand, you pull the thing up with a rope and then you run back down and then you run and you hit the thing with the sledgehammer and what's that thing called well uh they call it firefighter challenger we we call it our pat you know the uh, physical agility test uh, to get in so we have a, a pat which is our physical agility test but on a commercial level where you see it on tv that's more like a firefighter challenge and that's and they have different names for it yeah, I, it just kind of popped into my head because that looks like something. Um, I know that a couple of years ago I read the fire department was offering, like on a couple Saturdays in a row, people could come out and do it just mm-hmm. kind of for fun or people who were interested in becoming firefighters could kind of test to see where they were. Mm-hmm. But um, so you worked in logistics, but of course, you know, like everybody else, like in law enforcement, everybody starts off in patrol and firefighting. You started off as a firefighter in a, in a, in, in a fire station. Um, how long did you do that, and what other, you know, what other kind of specialties did you ever get into? Swift water, or you know, high angle rescue, or any of those specialty teams? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in um, uh, about twenty three years before I got into logistics, and um, our, our uh, department has grown so much in that time that uh, you know that cre- they created a new uh, space, or a new a new opportunity to jump into something different, which which logistics is something that we disperse like i said all the equipment out to the guys so they can do their job um as far as special teams i was hazmat certified and aircraft rescue firefighter certified those are my two certs that i had did you ever have an opportunity to put the, that firefighting stuff to use yeah unfortunately yeah we we responded to some uh, air, airplane crashes but and uh, it was pretty rough about 10 12 years ago didn't there was a plane crash out here of course our las cruces municipal airport is out on the west mesa right mm-hmm. by the fairgrounds right on the other side of the of i-10 uh i remember maybe 10 12 years ago they put the wrong kind of fuel in a plane unfortunately i respond to that call yeah it was a very devastating call now now what now it's really interesting what would be different about doing uh responding to a uh, an airplane crash than uh, just a regular highway you know automobile crash the fuel the fuel's a big uh, a big factor um the, the fuel that goes into airplane fuel uh, it um it's you have av gas and jet a which is burns really hot and the fume just the fumes themselves can catch fire so we have to fight uh, fight uh aircraft and f- uh, fire with uh of uh, agent that kills the the fumes, you know the the odors that come out, and we have a we use eight what they call triple F foam, and we lay down a foam blanket, make sure that those fumes don't come up and ignite, because they 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 have a, a higher ignition, uh, where they you can or um, actually they they get set on fire quicker, or okay. I should say lower uh, ignitions, you know you don't need that much to set them on fire. Uh, highly flammable and um they burn hotter so that's one of the things that we have to make sure that uh, all the fumes and and the fuel that uh is spilled is covered with the foam blanket now, it's funny because you i'm, I'm getting, starting to get some ideas and start talking about some things i didn't expect but i do want to now that you're talking about how responding to these differently 
and having different ignition points uh, and, and, and temperatures and things like that. Um, have you ever, is, are fire departments now training in the challenges of dealing with vehicle fires on these electric vehicles and the certain batteries they have? Yes, um, th- we're starting to get training on all that as well because that, that also poses a safety issue. And, and of course, and that's, that's the future. Yes. You know, I mean, our, our grandkids and great-great-grandchildren aren't going to know what burning fossil fuels is. They're, they're going to, any gas, cars that run on gas are going to be, are going to be collector's items. But, you know, I touched on a little bit before one of the good things about you talked about you got into firefighting because you needed something steady. You had a child and uh, one needed some steady work and, and, and benefits, something such much more steady than, than, um, than training fighters. But one of the good things about having the kind of schedule, and you guys, firefighting in general, I know, has uh, basically like a 24-on, 48-off. It's kind of like the standard, right? Uh, well, that was what I worked at since i got on in logistics um and offline uh we have gone to 4896 schedule now two days on and four days off so city fire now is working 48 on 96 off correct now that in some ways can seem rough because you're away from home for two days but for somebody like you who continued and you never stopped coaching fighters right right um now you you have uh two really big claims to fame uh, when it comes to your coaching career, you have uh, former world champion Austin Trout, who held the WBA 154-pound title. And, of course, uh, Square Peg podcast uh, alumna uh, Jennifer Hahn. Um, I would imagine it makes it easier for you to train, you know, fighters who are, tr- who are professional fighters, world-class, world champion fighters, who are, when, you, when they're in training camp, it's their full-time job. Uh, so you're, you're working for, back then it was 24 on and then 48 off. Right. What did you do for the the days that you were working, Coach Joe? Um, yeah, well, I had uh, I had some coaches that helped me out, but I also uh, going into a big fight. I, I took a couple weeks off. I did, the luxury we have in the fire department is we have change of shifts, so guys would work for me, and then later on I'd work for them. And so, two weeks going into a fight, I would get a bunch of change of shifts guys to work for me and then in, in on, on the other side of that you probably had to work four or five six days in a row without leaving the fire station well n- never that long but it, we'd work a couple days in a row yeah and i know if i'm not if i'm not mistaken um last couple of weeks training camp with with austin a couple of times you guys went up to rio Doso to take advantage of the the altitude right correct yeah i you know i remember um well when he left the, his probably his biggest victory ever, ever against miguel cotto uh, he came and, and stopped over at the uh, at my department where I work, and our uh, second in command at the time arranged that, and he did a did a photo op. And I know you guys had just been in Rio Doso for a couple of weeks. Um, we we mentioned you you coached uh, Jennifer Hahn, and she gave us a pretty good detailed account of how you guys came to know each other. You were coaching uh, AB at first, mm-hmm. but you coached uh, before long before he turned pro. You coached Austin up through the amateurs, right? When did he, when he, I think he came to your gym when he was about 10 years old? Yes, 10 years old. And you probably, I don't know how many amateur fights he had, but you probably saw him through quite a few of those. Yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, I saw him since he was a kid training. Uh, we had a, a coach who passed away, uh, Mr. Shaw, uh, who was a professional fighter in Philadelphia. And uh, him and, and uh, he actually, he was the first one that was training Austin. And he was working with Austin. And then um, Sam DePace Sr. started working with Austin, and then uh, I ended up taking the, the full role at, there. 
When did when did he turn he turned pro to, pro when he was eighteen? Um, about thereabouts. When did you realize there was something? Did you know there was a certain time when he was going to be something special? Oh yeah, when you win nationals, when you win the national tournament, I I knew that he was going to be something special because at that time, uh, the competition in his weight division was was very competitive and very strong, and uh, and he beat you know he beat these guys that were um, tough fighters. I knew he had a a chance to become world champion when he when he showed me he could become national champion. I knew he could go further with that. And and he doesn't have, you know, I think every article I've ever read on him, every boxing writer in the world has described him the same way. He's a slick southpaw. Uh, never been known for his power, didn't have a ton of knockouts. And to be honest, I think to the casual fan, um, if you're not somebody who watches a lot of boxing, probably not the most exciting fight. Because, again, he doesn't, doesn't knock a lot of people out. Um, he has a very, very much turns to the side. But um, you obviously were able to see something in him. Now, uh you guys went down to Mexico, and he won that belt against Rigoberto um, Alvarez. Alvarez. Yeah, Canelo's brother. And, of course, the Canelo, unfortunately, came. You know what's funny is I, 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 can, ad- I can admit it now. Um, I see things a lot differently because of my involvement in professional boxing. But this happened, that fight was in uh, April of 2013, I think. That was a couple years before I got involved uh, with professional boxing. I actually had I had I, I, I actually disliked Canelo for a couple of years because he beat Austin. I really did. And you know, believe it or not, and, and I respect him. He's you know, there's nothing to not respect about the guy. Uh, I think the other night when he fought uh, Jamel Charlo was the first time I actually straight up rooted for him. And talk about a boring fight. Yeah. Charlo didn't show up. I don't know how much going up two weight classes uh, had had anything to do with it. But you guys had a good run and um you actually just told me something I didn't know. You're traveling out of the country here pretty soon. Yeah, I'm, I'm planning on going uh, to uh, meet, uh, meet Austin. Uh, I'm flying to Germany on Monday. He's, uh, Austin's fighting in Germany, and uh, he has a fight scheduled. So I'm going to be working his corner. At junior middle, at 154? Yes. Because he actually went down. You know, he's one of the only long guys who have had long professional careers where I've – Hakobian. Yeah, he's an Arme- Armenian. It. it looks like a Hakobian. Yeah, it looks like he's he's a Russian Armenian. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Austin's one of the very few professional fighters that have had long careers because he's had over thirty fights where he never actually increased. He never, he never, he's never fought heavier than one fifty four. Now he went down to welterweight a couple times, a yeah. couple years ago, didn't he? Well, I think he tried. I think he lost some weight, and I, I don't, you know, it's just um, I think it's hard to maintain that that weight and be strong. Yeah. Well, in any case, um, that's pretty exciting. Have you ever been to Germany before? Yeah, I went for a fight uh, oh, years ago. as one of the Klitschko brothers was fighting um, over there, and uh, I had a, a fighter on the undercard, uh, Gustavo Enriquez out of Juarez. I was training. He was a light heavyweight. He went down there and fought. Well, in any case, who, now who's promoting this fight? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, Austin has a promoter, and uh, I'm not sure who's promoting it. You know, interesting side note here, and I realized this by accident. Um, one of his first promoters, or early promoters, Greg Cohen, mm-hmm. was a summer camp counselor of mine. Oh, really? In 1987. Oh. It was, oh. and, and not just a regular summer camp, it was fat camp mm-hmm. in Lackawaxen, Pennsylvania, at Camp Colang. I don't know how I discovered that. I was looking up Austin... 
on Facebook one time and I saw a picture of Greg. He's like, why would he have a picture of Greg? And I clicked on it and I, had, I hadn't talked to Greg in probably since 1988. And it turns out he was, uh, he was Austin's promoter for a while. It's a small world, right? Yeah. Um, but you actually um, preceded me uh, about this not quite, almost exactly a year ago, I received my appointment to the Athletic Commission. You served as a commissioner right. with the New Mexico Athletic Commission during what time period? From 1990 to 2000. Okay, so 10 years. 10 years. Wow. Now, were you coaching? Uh, so that would have been before your time coaching professional fighters. I was going to say. No, I, was would, still, I, was, I was actually coaching professional fighters, but I, I didn't coach them. I, I didn't. Um, I couldn't work their corners in New Mexico, obviously, because there's a conflict of interest. Of course. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So, but I did work their corners every other state and other places. Yeah. Now, you're, you're, you're taking this little trip to Germany. Um, you're still involved with the P- Police Athletic League here in Las Cruces? Right. What are your plans? Do you have any concrete plans? I mean, I, I can't imagine you ever not being involved in boxing. No, I, it's in the blood, you know. Even uh, I did take a little bit of a, a rest during COVID, you know. Uh, they had shut down the, the city, had shut down the gym for a short time. And, uh, well, it wasn't that short, actually. It was about a year and a half before we we could reopen but uh i i took a little little time off during that time as well and uh i missed it so you know i i just see that the boxing is always going to be part of me and uh you know whatever aspect i'm involved in you know i'm sure i'll be involved some way now are you are you officially because i know you're since you're retired from the city are you officially involved with the police athletic league now or wait what's what's the relationship Oh, I've always been. Yeah, well, I'm I'm currently the president of the, of the Police Athletic League. Okay, and you guys have quite a few coaches. Yes, we have. Uh, you, we we um, we have inner gym on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The amateurs. We have uh, you know, of course, my kids and I are, are at a different gym across town. But we mm-hmm. come over. One thing I'm always very envious of. We were at Crosstown last night. Uh, we don't go to DA too much, but when we go to your gym, we go to Crosstown. I'm always envious of the space you guys have. I mean, we're in a cramped little. Yeah. You know, but I'm, I'm always, it's impressed. The thing I like when we go to, we go over to Powell's, the thing I like is that it really has a community feel to it. It's a big gym. You guys mm-hmm. got two rings and, and all the bags, but you have, you have other stuff too. Like, I mean, like most gyms, of course, you got to wait, you know, a fitness set up there, but you've also got a chess room. Um, t- tell me a little bit, mm-hmm. just for the listeners, a little about the police athletic league is more than just boxing and it's more than just athletics. Right. Um, prior to COVID, we had a, um, uh, a chess club that was traveling. We're, we're trying to get that back into our our, our gym again. Um, it, it had it was going real successful, but during COVID when we shut the building, actually they went and they went to some schools which uh, adopted that program. It's a great program though, and we're hoping to get it back. Um, you know, there's other things we're talking about like a weightlifting program uh, under PAL, uh, that would be a competitive uh, competitive weightlifting program. And, and so we, we're all trying to incorporate other uh, ac- youth activities into under that building, uh, not just boxing, uh, and just to keep uh, these kids off the streets and give them something to do. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're getting up to the end of our time. I'm glad, you know, of course I can talk to Lou anytime I want, but I'm glad he came in to talk on record. Um, you've had a hell of a career as a firefighter. Thank you for your service. I know we, you know, we joke a lot. There's a lot of good-natured, uh, you know, rivalry between police officers and firefighters you know one of my two best friends is a firefighter I know, I know it sounds cliche my best friend is this my best friend is that i've had two best friends i've known my whole life you know one retired after 26 years in the army uh, i do what i do and uh, we got a firefighter 
uh, or hose dragger as we call them. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it, you know, and the, the funny thing is I've, I've always uh, tried to explain to people, we think of it our, it's just our job. I mean, it's more than that, but I, as much as I respect firefighters, and I'm sure you guys can say that just kind of the flip, the flip side of this, I've never been on a big scene, like a big crash on the highway or whatever, and stopped and looked at the firefighters and been like, oh, my God. They're so heroic. I'm just out there like, hey, he's doing his job. I'm doing mine. We're each right. doing our thing. And um, I think sometimes we forget how, how kind of cool and how special it is. Um, I actually wouldn't mind being a firefighter. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Now, we have ride-alongs. you guys have sleepovers? Uh, I don't think we've had any of that for quite a while. Uh, of course, We do that's have a, ride-alongs. We do have kids that can ride along. That's, that's the joke. Um, no. That's the memes on the internet. If, if, if police officers, if police officers have ride-alongs, do firefighters have sleepovers? No, I'll tell you what. I, oh, I, I got you now. I, <laughs> I, I feel really, I feel really bad, you know, having to wake you guys up because you know back in the day you guys fought fires. That's what you did, and now that the overwhelming majority of what you guys do is medical calls, right. and I forget what the protocol is. A lot of times. I've told my dispatcher, hey, I just want an ambulance. I don't need the fire department. No, 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 we have to call the fire department too. And it's because some dumbass in one of my holding cells is banging his head against the wall or whatever. And one of the best things my first field training officer taught me was spread the liability. So some dumbass is banging his head against the wall or says he doesn't feel well. First thing I'm doing is to tell my dispatcher, send me a 55 and send me an ambulance. And, of course, they got to send. And you guys, you know, the fire department, you guys walk in all groggy and it's, it's 3.30 in the morning. And I, first thing I do is I apologize. Because I, I hate getting woken up. You know, 15 years now being a detective, I get woken up to go do my job. And um, I'm not always happy about it. But I always feel bad about waking you guys up to come check some dumbass out who is, you know, doing something to himself. But, well, you, know. That, you know, on the, you know, that's what we signed up for. And we understood that when we signed up for the job. So, yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it had, things don't have to be the most convenient thing in the world you know we, we're here to to serve the public and i say we i'm retired now but the, the guys the guys that you know the firefighters they're, they're there to serve the public and and that's why they that's where they have the job and they they understand that and uh you know to me they are heroes they're my heroes you know something you'll never see a cop do and i, ne- I could never understand i knew some firefighters who did this is career fighter fighters as they would call as opposed to volunteer I, there were guys who were career firefighters of Las Cruces Fire who also volunteered. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah. to myself, I would never go work my shifts, my whatever my work week is in my department, and then go do it for free at somebody else's department. But and maybe that's that to me is you know a, a difference. You know, the firefighting really is a way of life. And, yeah, uh, we got we have people and they're so passionate, and you know, and, and I was blessed to have worked with those type of people that genuinely put uh other people in front of them and their families all the time you know it's uh it made a uh, made some gra- i made some great friends that, that were you know sincere friends because i know that their, their character and their personality well if if retired firefighters or, or anything like retired cops i can imagine uh you showing up to any number of places uh, any number of mornings a week for coffee with the old geezers because i know there are cops that do there's a mcdonald's group there's a roberto's group mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if I'll do that. We'll know. We'll, we'll find out in a year. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we spent the last 40 minutes or so talking to my friend uh, and colleague and fellow emergency responder, Louis Burke, who uh, is a somewhat of a legend here in New Mexico. Louis, good luck this uh, next week with Austin in Germany. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate that, and I'll tell him. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that has been your October episode of the Square Peg Podcast. We will be back the second Tuesday or Wednesday of November with a brand new episode. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you later.